footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav Sky. Good evening and welcome to your nightmares, where we like to keep it dark and dreamy here at Dark Softly Tales. This is your host, Mav. So, I have COVID this week <clears throat> and a little under the weather with fever and such, but thankfully, I recorded this episode earlier. So, we will be keeping the intro short and sweet. But I did want to say that I am feeling overwhelmed with gratitude for all of you listeners this week. So from my heart to yours, I'm sending a lot of love to you all. That being said, let's jump full-fledged into the dark. Don't worry, I got your hand. There's nothing to be afraid of. Is there? Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark softly. The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. Narrated by Mav Sky. Part 2 Both were gay and lighthearted. On such occasions, men lose the superficial, worldly distinctions. They become human beings working together for a common end. Simpson, the employer, and DeFago, the employed, among these primitive forces were simply two men, the guider and the guided. Superior knowledge, of course, assumed control, and the younger man fell without a second thought into the quasi-subordinate position. He never dreamed of objecting when DeFago dropped the mister and addressed him as, say, Simpson or Simpson boss, which was invariably the case before they reached the farther shore, after a stiff paddle of 12 miles against a head of wind. He only laughed and liked it, then ceased to notice it at all. For this divinity student was a young man of parts and character, though as yet, of course, untraveled. And on this trip, the first time he had seen any country but his own in little Switzerland, the huge scale of things somewhat bewildered him. It was one thing, he realized, to hear about primeval forests, but quite another to see them. While to dwell in them and seek acquaintance with their wildlife was, again, an initiation that no intelligent man could undergo without a certain shifting of personal values hitherto held for permanent and sacred. Simpson knew the first faint indication of this emotion when he held the new 303 rifle in his hands and looked along its pair of faultless, gleaming barrels. 
The three days' journey to their headquarters, by lake and portage, had carried the process a stage farther. And now that he was about to plunge beyond even the fringe of wilderness, where they were camped into the virgin heart of uninhabited regions as vast as Europe itself, the true nature of the situation stole upon him with an effect of delight and awe that his imagination was fully capable of appreciating. It was himself and Defago against a multitude, at least against a titan. The bleak splendors of these remote and lonely forests rather overwhelmed him with the sense of his own littleness, that stern quality of the tangled backwoods which can only be described as merciless and terrible, rose out of those far blue woods swimming upon the horizon and revealed itself. He understood the silent warning. He realized his own utter helplessness. Only Defago, as a symbol of distant civilization where man was master, stood between him and a pitiless death by exhaustion and starvation. It was thrilling to him, therefore, to watch Defago turn over the canoe upon the shore, pack the paddles carefully underneath, and then proceed to blaze the spruce stems for some distance on either side of an almost invisible trail, with a careless remark thrown in. Say, Simpson, if anything happens to me, you'll find the canoe all correct by these marks. Then strike due west into the sun to hit the home camp again. See? It was the most natural thing in the world to say, and he said it without any noticeable inflection of his voice. Only it happened to express the youth's emotions at the moment with an utterance that was symbolic of the situation and of his own helplessness as a factor in it. He was alone with Defago in a primitive world. That was all. The canoe, another symbol of man's ascendancy, was now to be left behind. Those small yellow patches made on the trees by the axe were the only indication of its hiding place. Meanwhile, shouldering the packs between them, each man carrying his own rifle, they followed the slender trail over rocks and fallen trunks and across half-frozen swamps, skirting numerous lakes that fairly gemmed the forest. Their borders fringed with mist, and towards five o'clock found themselves suddenly on the edge of the woods looking out across a large sheet of water in front of them, dotted with pine-clad islands of all describable shapes and sizes. Fifty island water, announced Defago warily, and the sun just going to dip its old bald head into it, he added, with unconscious poetry, and immediately they set about pitching camp for the night. In a very few minutes, under those skillful hands that never made a movement too much or a movement too little, the silk tent stood taut and cozy. The beds of balsam boughs ready laid, and a brisk cooking fire burned with the minimum of smoke. While the young Scotchmen cleaned the fish they had caught trolling behind the canoe, Defago guessed he would just as soon take a turn through the bush for indications of moose. May come across a trunk where they've been and rubbed horns, he said as he moved off, or feeding on the last of the maple leaves. And he was gone. His small figure melted away like a shadow in the dusk, 
while Simpson noted with a kind of admiration how easily the forest absorbed him into herself. A few steps in, it seemed, and he was no longer visible. Yet there was little underbrush hereabouts. The trees stood somewhat apart, well-spaced, and in the clearings grew silver birch and maple, spear-like and slender, against the immense stems of spruce and hemlock. Before occasional prostrate monsters, and the boulders of gray rock that thrust uncouth shoulders here and there out of the ground, it might as well have been a bit of park in the old country. Almost, one might have seen it in the hand of man. A little to the right, however, began the great burnt section, miles in extent, proclaiming its real character, Brulee, as it is called, where the fires of the previous year had raged for weeks, and the blackened stumps now rose gaunt and ugly, bereft of branches, like gigantic matchheads stuck into the ground, savage and desolate beyond words. The perfume of charcoal and rain-soaked ashes still hung faintly about it. The dusk rapidly deepened. The glades grew dark. The crackling of the fire and the wash of little waves along the rocky lake shore were the only sounds audible. The wind had dropped with the sun, and in all that vast world of branches nothing stirred. Any moment, it seemed, the woodland gods, who are to be worshipped in silence and loneliness, might stretch their mighty and terrific outlines among the trees. In front, through doorways pillared by huge straight stems, lay the stretch of Fifty Island Water, a crescent-shaped lake some fifteen miles from tip to tip, and perhaps five miles across where they were camped. A sky of rose and saffron, more clear than any atmosphere Simpson had ever known, still dropped its pale, streaming fires across the waves. Where the islands, a hundred, surely rather than fifty, floated like the fairy barks of some enchanted fleet, fringed with pines whose crests fingered most delicately the sky, they almost seemed to move upwards as the light faded about to weigh, anchor, and navigate the pathways of the heavens instead of the currents of their native and desolate lake. And strips of colored cloud, like flaunting pennants, signaled their departure to the stars. The beauty of the scene was strangely uplifting. Simpson smoked the fish and burnt his fingers into the bargain in his efforts to enjoy it, and at the same time, tend the frying pan and the fire. Yet, Ever at the back of his thoughts lay that other aspect of the wilderness, the indifference to human life, the merciless spirit of desolation which took no note of man. The sense of his utter loneliness, now that even DeFago had gone, came close as he looked about him and listened for the sound of his companion's returning footsteps. There was pleasure in the sensation, yet with it a perfectly comprehensible alarm. And instinctively, the thought stirred in him. What should I do, could I do, if anything happened and he did not come back? They enjoyed their well-earned supper, eating untold quantities of fish, drinking unmilked tea, strong enough to kill men who had not covered 30 miles of hard going, eating little on the way. 
And when it was over, they smoked and told stories around the blazing fire, laughing, stretching weary limbs, and discussing plans for the morrow. Tifega was in excellent spirits, though disappointed at having no signs of moose to report. But it was dark, and he had not gone far. The brulee, too, was bad. His clothes and hands were smeared with charcoal. Simpson, watching him, realized with renewed vividness their position, alone, together, in the wilderness. Defago, he said presently, these woods, you know, are a bit too big to feel quite at home in, to feel comfortable in, I mean, eh? He merely gave expression to the mood of the moment. He was hardly prepared for their earnestness, the solemnity, even, with which the guide took him up. You've hit it right, Simpson boss, he replied, fixing his searching brown eyes on his face. And that's the truth, sure. There's no end to him, no end at all. Then he added in a lowered tone, as if to himself, There's lots found out that, and gone plumb to pieces. But the man's gravity of manner was not quite to the other's liking. It was a little too suggestive for the scenery and setting, and he was sorry he had broached the subject. Remembered suddenly how his uncle had told him that men were sometimes stricken with a strange fever of the wilderness, when the seduction of the uninhabited waste caught them so fiercely that they went forth, half fascinated, half deluded, to their death. And he had a shrewd idea that his companion held something in sympathy with that queer type. He led the conversation on to other topics. On to Hank and the doctor, for instance, and the natural rivalry as to who should get the first sight of moose. If they went due west, observed Defago carelessly, there's 60 miles between us now, with old Punk at halfway house eating himself full, busting with fish and coffee. They laughed together over the picture, but the casual mention of those 60 miles again made Simpson realize the prodigious scale of this land where they hunted. 60 miles was a mere step, 200 little more than a step. Stories of lost hunters rose persistently before his memory. The passion and mystery of homeless and wandering men, seduced by the beauty of great forest, swept his soul in a way too vivid to be quite pleasant. He wondered vaguely whether it was the mood of his companion that invited the unwelcome suggestion with such persistence. Sing us a song, Defago, if you're not too tired, he asked. One of those old voyager songs you sang the other night. He handed his tobacco pouch to the guide and then filled his own pipe, while the Canadian, nothing loth, sent his light voice across the lake in one of those plaintive, almost melancholy shanties with which lumbermen and trappers lessened the burden of their labor. And there was an appealing and romantic flavor about it, something that recalled the atmosphere of the old pioneer days when Indians and wilderness were leagued together, battles frequent, and the old country farther off than it is today. The sound traveled pleasantly over the water, but the forest at their backs seemed to swallow it down with a single gulp that permitted neither echo nor resonance. It was in the middle of the third verse that Simpson noticed something unusual, something that brought his thoughts back with a rush from the faraway scenes. 
A curious change had come into the man's voice. Even before he knew what it was, uneasiness caught him. And looking up quickly, he saw that DeFago, though still singing, was peering about him into the bush, as though he had heard or saw something. His voice grew fainter, dropped to a hush, then ceased altogether. The same instant, with a movement amazingly alert, he started to his feet and stood upright, sniffing the air. Like a dog scenting game, he drew the air into his nostrils in short, sharp breaths, turning quickly as he did so in all directions, and finally pointing down the lakeshore, eastwards. It was performance unpleasantly suggestive, and at the same time, singularly dramatic. Simpson's heart fluttered disagreeably as he watched it. Lord, man, how you made me jump! He exclaimed, on his feet beside him the same instant, and peering over his shoulder into the sea of darkness. What's up? Are you frightened? Even before the question was out of his mouth, he knew it was foolish. For any man with a pair of eyes in his head could see that the Canadian had turned white down to his very gills. Not even sunburn and the glare of the fire could hide that. The student felt himself trembling a little, weakish in the knees. What's up? He repeated quickly. Do you smell moose? Or anything queer? Anything wrong? He lowered his voice instinctively. The forest pressed around them with its encircling wall. The nearer tree stems gleamed like bronze in the firelight. Beyond that, blackness. And so far as he could tell, a silence of death. Just beyond them, a passing puff of wind lifted a single leaf, looked at it, then laid it softly down again without disturbing the rest of the... It seemed as if a million invisible causes had combined just to produce that single visible effect. Other life pulsed about them and was gone. DeFago turned abruptly. The livid hue of his face had turned to a dirty gray. I never said I heard or smelt nothing, he said slowly and emphatically in an oddly altered voice that conveyed somehow a touch of defiance. I was only taking a look around, so to speak. It's always a mistake to be too previous with your questions. Then he added suddenly with obvious effort in his more natural voice, have you got the matches, Boss Simpson? And proceeded to light the pipe he had half filled just before he began to sing. Without speaking another word, they sat down again by the fire. DeFago changing his side so that he could face the direction the wind came. For even a tenderfoot could tell that. DeFago changed his position in order to hear and smell all that was to be heard and smelt. And since he now faced the lake with his back to the trees, it was evidently nothing in the forest that had sent so strange and sudden a warning to his marvelously trained nerves. Guess now I don't feel like singing any, he explained presently of his own accord. That song kinder brings back memories that's troublesome to me. I never ought have begun it. It sets me on imagining things, see? Clearly, the man was still fighting with some profoundly moving emotion. 
he wished to excuse himself in the eyes of the other, but the explanation, and that it was only a part of the truth, was a lie, and he knew perfectly well that Simpson was not deceived by it. For nothing could explain away the livid terror that had dropped over his face while he stood there sniffing the air, and nothing no amount of blazing fire or chatting on ordinary subjects could make that camp exactly as it had been before. The shadow of an unknown horror, naked as if unguessed, that had flashed for an instant in the face and gestures of the guide had also communicated with itself, vaguely and therefore more potently to his companion. The guide's visible efforts to disassemble the truth only made things worse. Moreover, to add to the younger man's uneasiness was a difficulty, nay, the impossibility, he felt, of asking questions, and also his complete ignorance as to the cause. Indians, wild animals, forest fires, all these, he knew, were wholly out of the question. His imagination searched vigorously, but in vain. Yet somehow or other, after another long spell of smoking, talking, and roasting themselves before the great fire, the shadow that had so suddenly invaded their peaceful camp began to shift. Perhaps DeFago's efforts, or the return of his quiet and normal attitude, accomplished this. Perhaps Simpson himself had exaggerated the affair out of the... out of all proportion to the truth. Or possibly the vigorous air of the wilderness brought its own powers of healing. Whatever the cause, the feeling of immediate horror seemed to have passed away as mysteriously as it had come, for nothing occurred to feed it. Simpson began to feel that he had permitted himself the unreasoning terror of a child. He put it down partly to a certain subconscious excitement that this wild and immense scenery generated in his blood partly to the spell of solitude, and partly to over-fatigue. That pallor in the guide's face was, of course, uncommonly hard to explain, yet it might have been due in some way to an effect of firelight, or his own imagination. He gave it the benefit of the doubt. He was scotch. Who likes dark stories? People who have experienced a touch of the dark side. People who are a little wiser to the world. People who like their bones chilled and their spines tingled. People like you and me. It's hard to find a story these days that write on the dark side with a touch of whimsy, humor, and heart. Mav Sky spreads her dark wings and solves this problem for you. Head on over to Amazon and type Mav Sky's name into the search engine. M-A-V-S-K-Y-E. At Amazon, you'll find her Tales to Chill Your Bones series, Girl Clown Hatchet series, Supergirl series, her cult classic novel, Wanted Single Rails, and of course, her brand new release, Cold Hangs the Midnight. Choose your dark flavor and head on over to Amazon today.